you have what we call negotiation theater. The front end of the house where you have formal meetings from 10 to 1, 3 to 6, but also the informal space, sometimes what they call the corridor chatter. So if you're being thrown to any negotiation, whether you are the lead or not the lead, you need to know who might be the champions, who might be the spoilers, and how you're going to manage the space of various stakeholders. Warmth is actually more important than competence. Because if you are warm and competent, people want to help you. But even if you are warm and not competent, and, what, and that's what I call the newbie card, you know, people still actually want to try to support you. And then where you have a problem is when you might be competent, but not showing of warmth. And that results in more of a competitive dynamic. Hello, everyone. This is Maz. Before we get to my chat with Yimin Wu, I just wanted to share something with you regarding my last episode with the Russian blogger Natasha from Russia, and appeal for your help. This episode was a strange experience for me. If you've listened to it, you would have hopefully been left in no doubt about her opinion of Putin or the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Equally, anyone who's listened to more than five minutes of this podcast would know my personal orientation towards this invasion and to war more broadly. Be that as it may, I have received several private messages and have been tagged in a number of posts on social media that seek to portray Natalia as a member of the Russian intelligence services and me as some sort of a naive pawn who has fallen for her trap. Regardless of how insane this might sound to me, it ultimately seems to be what some people out there actually believe. What's worse is that a few of these individuals have now taken it upon themselves to write quite denigrating and condescending reviews of the podcast on various podcasting platforms. Naturally, everyone is entitled to their opinions and should be able to write what they want regardless of how inaccurate or misguided their views might be. The fact that the most emotionally involved and most partisan among us will have the greatest motivation to write, share and engage with content is nothing new and is simply a sign of the algorithmically supercharged times we're in. However, these comments are degrading the reputation and perceived quality of this show to new listeners, which is something I do care about. Therefore, if you're getting value out of the voices of war, and want to support channels that encourage nuanced and diverse discussions, I would really appreciate it if you could take a minute out of your day to write a review of the show on whatever platform you use to listen to the show. All I'm asking for is a fair review that will give potential listeners a more accurate reflection of the show and its content. Thank you. And now let's get to my conversation with the amazing Yimin Wu. My guest today is Yimin Wu who is the South and Southeast Asia Director at the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue. Emin joined HD earlier this year after more than 15 years as a diplomat representing Singapore at the United Nations, World Intellectual Property Organization, UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, as well as the World Trade Organization. She has also chaired UN negotiations and represented the Group of 77 in China in talks on sustainable development issues. Emin is a co-author of Negotiating at the United Nations, a Practitioner's Guide, a textbook that is used by various global institutions, and she also conducts workshops and lectures on negotiation and leadership in diplomacy for governments, universities, and other training programs. She joins me today to discuss how multilateral negotiations are conducted and explain some of the challenges as well as opportunities inherent in the process. Eamon, thank you very much for joining me on The Voices of War. Thanks for having so me So before today. we dive into the murky world of negotiations. 
perhaps you can give us a potted version of your background and maybe explain what motivated your entry into the world of diplomacy. I did not grow up thinking I wanted to be a diplomat. In fact, I wanted to be a doctor. And I think I was very much inspired by my family, all of which embodied servant leadership. Not necessarily in, by saying so, but in the way that they lived. My grandparents were educators. My father was a doctor who was also active in Rotary International, as well as my mom, who was a civil servant. And so I've always wanted a job that was meaningful, where I could contribute to others and to help make lives better for the community. I think the second thing that was important for me in finding my job was passion, because I felt that work wasn't just about work. It was about giving back. It was about putting your time to something that was important for you, right? Hence, you know, diplomacy was really key mm-hmm. because I enjoyed the subject and it, it became a life in that sense. And the third was really about being open to change. Um, and, and you will see this throughout my, my career where when there was an opportunity, uh, I was being open to the fact that maybe it would, it would help me to learn. Maybe this was a place where I could contribute. And that's what drove me towards my journey to today. Wonderful. What a, uh, what a lovely, colorful uh, and a genuine commitment to a life of, uh, of peacemaking, I guess. And was there a particular path that took you to diplomacy? Oh, yes. When I was in college, I wasn't quite sure what to do with a degree in international relations. Mm-hmm. But a fellow at a think tank that I was interning with uh, recommended that I join the foreign ministry. And he had been in the foreign ministry as well. And I asked him about his experience. He said he enjoyed it. So I took the exam and yeah, that's where I spent one and a half decades of my life. Mm. And talk about uh, being open to change. I guess that's a, that, that was a, a rather quick pivot, a good suggestion and, uh, <laughs> and off you went. <laughs> Indeed. And, and in fact, in between that, I, I was teaching and I really enjoyed it as well. Mm. Again, there was a chance opportunity. And so who knows what, what else life will bring uh, on this journey. Yeah, absolutely. That's a wonderful way to, way to live. And throughout that career, you've been involved in, uh, in a number of senior level multilateral negotiations on significant global issues. Is there one in particular that stands out that's uh, been the greatest, uh, I guess, source of learning for you? Yes, it's one in particular, which was the 10-year framework of programs on sustainable consumption and production. It's a very long name, I know. So <laughs> we call it SCP for short. Mm-hmm. And I was at that point in time approached by the chair of the G77 in China, asking if I could help to negotiate this on behalf of the alliance. And, and that group, had over 30 countries, and it was really diverse. You had large countries like South Africa, India, China, Brazil, small states like Barbados, Maldives, medium-sized states uh, like Guatemala. And my job was to help forge that position, Mm. build consensus among the 130 overseas, and then negotiate with the partners from US, EU, and others in order to reach a consensus agreement that would actually help society. So Mm. a lot of time, effort, goodwill went to it. But there was many learning points as well. And one of it was that there, in every negotiation process, you have what we call negotiation theater, right? Mm. The front end of the house where you have formal meetings from 10 to 1, 3 to 6, but also the informal space, sometimes what they call the corridor chatter. And I learned how to design that space to make it useful rather than it just being chance opportunities. And what I mean by that was that at 6 p.m. each evening, I would invite 
negotiators to just come and meet and to talk about topics that we knew would be negotiating in, in the coming days, right? And at the beginning of, of that session, people were a bit nervous, doubtful, skeptical. But, you know, really by the end of the week, people were talking to each other rather than at each other. And that was important because they were beginning to see each other beyond the flag or organization that they represent. Mm. You know, another thing that happened during these evening meetings were that there were two countries which don't usually speak to each other, not just on sustainable development, but on, on anything at all. And by the end of the week, they too were speaking to each other, right? And it showed how, as a small state, or how if I was observant, we could be mediating or helping others to find a safe space to share, because it's really about that human-human interaction, which is so important for us to find solutions and to reach what we call the win-win outcomes, mm, right? Mm, mm. Another aspect of that negotiation was learning to also build alliances but, and also trust, right? Because you can't keep going back to all 130 countries at every moment of the negotiation, mm. So you also need to reach a point where the countries trust you to represent them and to have their back, mm, right? Mm, mm. And so that they know that you're not shortchanging them, but you are really trying to do what is best for that group. Hence, credibility and reputation is very important. We always say that, you know, we need to learn how to be self-aware so that even in a heightened moment, you are not being angry or overly emotional because what you have as a negotiator is that reputation and that trust that people have about you. And that's what they're going to remember. Mm, that's fascinating. There are so many threads that, are, that I'd like to pick out uh, <laughs> from, from that. Uh, maybe the first one, if I can, you made a very clear mention about the 6 p.m. onwards and that it's a, it's a different session other than, the, I guess, the formal agenda. One of my jobs in the army is I, I, I teach interpersonal or I instruct on interpersonal communication, interpersonal and intercultural communication. Uh, and this is one aspect that I, that I touch on is how to break barriers between the other, exactly. right? Between yourself and the other, whoever that other might be, whatever differences overt or otherwise there might be. And, and this is why this is so interesting to me. What happens after 6 p.m.? What, what is so different about that session to the formal session that allows you to achieve this connection uh, between people? I think when, when you reach 6 p.m., that's when everybody is sort of tired. And it's also when you kind of shed that image, right, which you have in the formal meetings. And usually if you bring food, you mm. know, that helps because mm. you build a relationship over the buffet table mm. rather than the negotiating table. And then you start the conversation with, you know, how did you find a day? How's your family been? I know all of us have been stuck here. We haven't seen very much light, given the fact that we've often <laughs> in the basement of the UN. These are things that you can't begin with when you are in a formal process, right? At 10 o'clock, that's not how the mm. chair starts off the meeting, at least. So these 6 p.m. spaces, which are informal, are candid, but most importantly, also discreet, right? We're not going out shouting about it. We're just saying that this is a space that if you, are like, if you would like to come, please come, right? And at the same time, respect all of us who are trying to now find solutions together. So none of us are being wedded or pigeonholed into things. But we can actually think beyond the box, right? Mm. And we're not also mm -hmm. fixed in terms of what our government's reputation might be or, you know, a rigid structure of bureaucracy which might be used to. You know, just a funny story here is 
I had a, a wonderful ambassador who, whenever he chaired meetings, he would ask me about the menu for breakfast, lunch, and mm. dinner. And in the beginning, I never quite understood it. But the realization was actually by offering the parties breakfast, right, at the meeting, they would come together, and I said, begin conversation over the buffet table rather than at the negotiating table. And then by providing lunch, it meant that you didn't lose the momentum of the negotiation, right? Because if everybody leaves, they come back, it's hard to just sort of get started again. And then in the evenings, you know, we provided drinks and tidbits so that people could, again, relax, feel like they were human again, and talk about how the day went, right? And which is why you highlighted, it's so important to teach or at least guide people to show that you can have these interpersonal moments, even if you are negotiating something difficult. Yeah. I love that. I, that speaks so much to me. I, I particularly, and the image when you said you had the buffet together. I mean, you're standing next to each other as opposed to sitting opposite each other, right? Just that image that you just presented exactly. in my mind really makes that perfectly clear because it allows you to, you know, in my in my teaching, I call it threading. Uh, you know, you can thread a story into as many aspects as you as you want. I mean, you can ask about children. You can ask about their previous careers. You can ask about how their day was, you know, uh, what their hotel room is like, all of these, I guess, personal questions, right, that uh, people would discuss, you know, with with an acquaintance, but you don't necessarily get the opportunity to, I guess, build rapport through those incidental discussions that such an informal session allows you. I think that's uh, that, that's absolutely wonderful. And, and that reminds me that, you know, one of my, my mentors as a mediator, uh, his name is Susan Weishas, and he highlighted that at different points of a mediation, he's wearing different hats. Right. Mm. At some point, he's a father. At some point in time, he's a former civil servant. At some point, he is the mediator, you know, and at some point in time, he's in a, a business owner. And because he wears different hats, that allows him to utilize different narratives to persuade and to explain and to connect. Right. And I think that's something that we have mm. to be aware also as, as negotiators, as mediators, that we're not just one person. We actually have multiple identities. Mm. And how do we utilize these identities to connect? with the other party. And, you know, I know you, you, you highlighted the other several times and it, it brings back that there was a class that I took where they talked about post-colonialism. It was by Edward Said. Mm. And that idea of the other really struck me because growing up, I was the other, right? In a sense, for, for, for you know, uh, what we call the West. So how do you explain yourself? What does this mean for you, right? And so how do you connect in that sense? These are all things that have really been in my mind through my journey. Absolutely. And again, most of my audience will know how they'll probably chuckle how much this will resonate with me because I'm, I, I was the other in many of my past lives. Uh, when I say past lives, I mean as a refugee in Germany, then as a migrant in Australia. There is an entire uh, embodiment of experience that one needs to digest to join your new adopted culture, your new adopted language, all of these things. And until you, know, certain, until you hit certain thresholds, whether it's through your accent or through colloquialism that you use or through the clothes you wear or through just how you look, it's very easy to still remain an other. And those who are in privileged positions, I often say, don't necessarily see that because they've never been, I guess, pushed to step outside and become an other uh, somewhere else, if they haven't, uh, you know, if they haven't travelled, or have, if they haven't experienced different cultures, or or where they've been, the one that is ever so slightly different. Which is why I think people like like you, I guess, in these organisations, why it's so important. You're kind of the the central node, the living uh, interpreter, not only linguistically. I mean, 
performatively. Like you said, this is a theater. You know, you're, you're almost staging and creating the conditions for people to kind of have these little bumps along the way to create these uh, shared experiences that they can build on, uh, which I think is a, an admirable job. I wonder, is there a particular personality type for this? This is a question that's completely just come on top of my head now, but I wonder if there's a particular personality type that you've picked up, there are particular personality traits that you've picked up, uh, whether in yourself or in, uh, in other negotiators that you've met throughout your time. That's interesting. I think a key element is being able to show warmth. Right? There's a study by Amy Cuddy where she highlights that warmth is actually more important than competence. Because if you are warm and competent, people want to help you. But even if you are warm and not competent, and, what, and that's what I call the newbie card, mm. you know, people still actually want to try to support you. And then where you have a problem is when you might be competent, but not showing of warmth. And that results in more of a competitive dynamic, right? And so one of the key things that we teach is that in all things, smile, mm. right? Show warmth, mm-hmm. you know, and that's so important in, in any negotiation you're in, especially when you don't understand the other party's language, for example, yeah. right? Because it, it may be a situation where English is not their first language. And so what they are looking really at is your body cues, right? And how you yeah. are, uh, you know, representing yourself in, in that sense. I think that a lot of it is teachable, you know. Mm. One of the things that we went very much inspired when we wrote our book uh, on negotiations was from Dag Hammarskog, the former UN Secretary General. And he believed that any negotiator could learn how to speak for the world by balancing interests and global responsibility, right? And so this quote from him where he says that the UN is a place where it is possible to serve the world by serving your nation and to serve your nation by serving the world. And that really struck us because if you can teach negotiators to speak for a better world and for them to learn how to balance this interest and the narratives, you know, and the different hats that they have, as well as global responsibility, maybe we can produce more meaningful and sustainable outcomes, right? Otherwise, everything becomes that zero-sum game, which really is not fruitful to anybody. And we are in it for the long haul. So even if you win the first round, What's going to happen in the second and third round? And so people should be looking towards the fact that you need a strong relationship in the long run. And for that, that means investing in understanding the other party, in having empathy, and realizing that at the end of the day, we're all human beings. Mm, yeah, you're absolutely preaching to the converted. And uh, I know uh, many in my audience will chuckle. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's uh, absolutely true. But maybe just before we go any further, maybe it's, it's useful to explain the process of negotiation, so or multilateral negotiations. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there is an actual process, and I think it would help uh, both for me, but I'm sure for the audience as well to get an understanding of how that occurs, who leads it, who initiates it, you know, how is it actually conducted, especially when you're talking 130 plus nations. I mean, this is a pretty significant undertaking. Sure. So often in a multilateral negotiation, you have somebody that tables the first draft. Right, which is why it's always key. If you are from an NGO or you're an advocate from elsewhere, if you want something to go to the UN, you need to think about who is going to table that first draft for you. And that is going to be a member state, right? And so what is why is it in that interest for that member state to table it? Because it takes a lot of effort. It will also mean a lot of goodwill and, and expected trade-offs for the member state to do it. Hence, that member state will probably consider building an informal alliance to start, sometimes they call it you know, a friend of the sustainable cities, a friend of, of, of a country, just 
to highlight that these are various member states who are also interested in pursuing this topic. Mm. And so through discussions with this informal friends group, they get ideas of what would go into the draft. And that's when they start shopping the draft around mm. to various member states to get buy-in, to get input. And then when they think that it's actually somewhat cooked, then that's when they formally tabled it to the secretariat so that there can be a formal discussion of that process, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. And when you discuss it in the formal meeting, then that's when we talked about how it's what we call the theatre because you are really talking about bargaining positions at that point and not necessarily the interest. And hence, it is important to design your process so that in between all of these formal discussions, you also have informal and safe spaces to have dialogues to share and maybe amend the text where necessary, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And usually, there's a timeline for when you might want your resolution to be adopted. But once you hopefully have everybody on board, you then submit it to say it's closed. We have something called silence procedure. Silence procedure is you know, when the chair highlights that, okay, it seems that we are somewhat in agreement. People might need, still need to check back a little bit, but if silence procedure is not broken, that's when it will go into adoption. Right. But I think if we were to distill the lessons from this is the fact that in many negotiations, there's a lot of ambiguity. So what do you do with ambiguity? So there are three things that I, I usually highlight. The first is that you need to know who the personalities mm. of the stakeholders are. So if you're being thrown to any negotiation, whether you are the lead or not the lead, you need to know who might be the champions, who might be the spoilers, and how you're going to manage the base of various stakeholders. And always remember that, unfortunately, it often only takes for one spoiler to mm. bring the house of cards tumbling down. And so you want to make sure that you don't miss out on any particular person. And at the same time, you want to also help the spoilers realize that it's not necessarily in their interest because of the fact that there is a global responsibility element as well. The second Mm. thing that I usually highlight is the point of a timeline, right? Mm. Because in a negotiation process, there's moments where things are being tabled, there's moments when things are being discussed in the back room. So a bit like cooking, right? You kind of want to go when, you know, your chef is going Mm. to the the market and looking at the ingredients and deciding what to pick and put into the meal. You want to be in the kitchen when they're deciding what will be cut out of the process. You want to help them put it into the Mm. oven. And what you don't want to be is only to show up when it's put on the dining table and you are forced to eat that dish, Mm. right? And so the timeline is crucial in helping you to know when are the moments where you can actually influence that outcome. And then the third element I would highlight is understanding the context of the history. Mm. Often a subject is not completely new. There is some either historical discussion to it or there might be some sensitive words. So if you are in you know, UNFCCC negotiations where I spend some time, you know that the words common but differentiated responsibilities is loaded, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of background to that and it's very controversial. So knowing these things helps you to avoid the landmines when you are in that ambiguous space. Mm. So I would say that it isn't too difficult to understand the negotiation process. It's more of a question of knowing, as I said, the stakeholders, knowing when to move in to influence it and how to avoid the landmines per se. That's wonderful. I mean, again, that's that's like interpersonal communication. There's an art and a science, right? We know through science what makes the human animal tick. You know, like you said before, when you smile, we are programmed to smile back. Uh, and it's actually quite hard not to smile at someone when they smile at you. You have to consciously <laughs> attempt to not <laughs> smile. 
and we also know through you know scientific research how we can shape people's perceptions about us or about the sixth uh, environment uh, and i guess that is the the science uh, and we have you know uh, various theories uncertainty reduction theory springs to mind and one that i use all the time reducing uncertainty about the other will automatically increase likability that's the science the art i guess is how you apply it how you bring your experience uh, into the room to actually make all of that work and to create the necessary opportunities, uh, which, which again, speaks uh, so loudly to me. You've made a number of times the point about position versus interests. And I feel like that's an important point. What is the difference between a position of a nation state and their interests? So, you know, the, the positioning is often what they would articulate, right? And what you would find in megaphone diplomacy. Whereas the core interest is, is what's in, fundamentally important for them, which they may not necessarily show their cards on, right? Mm-hmm. So a, a, a small example is, you know, with, with my kids, right? Mm-hmm. When my son tells my daughter that this toy car is not fun, it's not really worth playing with, that's his <laughs> bargaining position, right? Because his true interest is, to, is for his sister to forsake that car so, <laughs> so he can play, can play with it, with it. <laughs> exactly <laughs> and we'll find it in all our families right? we also yeah, find oh, it sometimes yeah. you know, you know when, when we are just negotiating at a market or, or in other places so these are certain things that, or skill sets right which we should be teaching whether it's from our children or, or others and it brings me to this story that I read over the weekend about Ryan Reynolds right the actor and, mm-hmm. and now he said that it was really important that he took a conflict management class and how that has really changed, you know, his mindset and how he uses it in, in his business and, you know, daily living. But these are things that I think we can do more in Asia. You know, Asia is quite discreet in how we manage conflict, but Asia also needs to diversify beyond weaponry so that more investments are put towards dialogue and community resilience, right? Mm. And we can talk more about this, but I'm, I'm sure you already are hear, hearing that in Asia, there's increased militarization in the region and data points to this. You know, the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute already highlighted that Asian defense spending is up 3% between 2010 and 2020. So how can mm. we help Asian governments to move beyond their traditional approach of investing in security and defense, which is important, certainly, but also diversifying and putting more resources towards what we've been talking about, which is dialogue, you know, helping the other party to understand empathy, community resilience, because if we can really address tensions at the source, then fewer resources might be spent on what is defense, or more importantly, the costly economic, social, and humanitarian fallout mm. from war and conflict, right? Mm. Mm. Yeah. I do want to pick up on, uh, on the point you made about Asian conflict management, uh, which suggests, as you as you made the point, is in a way militarized. I guess. Can you explore that a little bit more? Uh, and I do make uh, and I do note that you've made the point that uh, spending has increased fifty three percent in in a decade, which is significant. But what is the source of that? Is that uh, is that something cultural that's uh, deeply embedded uh, within Asian communities uh, or Asian nations, uh, or, or how do you explain it? I would say that actually Asian communities in the past. They used to go to an, say, an elder or clan leader to sort out your problems. But somehow when there's less trust, mm-hmm. you know, that's when people start building up more of your security and your defense as a reaction mm. to manage that conflict. So the question is, how do we go back to our roots, right, in Asia, so that we, as we highlighted, put some time 
and effort into investing in peace and justice networks, which actually there are a few that are upcoming. You have, you know, the Southeast Asian Network of Women Peace Negotiators and Mediators that was established by the Indonesians, and that really should be supported. You also have the ASEAN Institute for Peace and Reconciliation, which could also do with a lot more support. Hmm. So how do we help Asia invest in such local resilience, mediation and dialogue tools? And, I, and I'll give you a story here. Mm-hmm. You know, in the Philippines, when they were working on the, on the peace process, there was a realization that if you don't manage the horizontal conflict, which is the day-to-day violence, it really squeezes that base for dialogue between track one negotiators and, and the community, right? Because you are firefighting and managing day-to-day violence rather than focusing on the peace process negotiations. Mm. And so in Sulu, they established an organization called Tumikang Samasama. And in the local language, it means together we move forward. Mm. And in this organization, clan leaders, elders were taught how to mediate conflict, especially Rido, which is clan conflict, right? Mm. Clan violence. And Tumikang Samasama, till today, has resolved over 125 cases. They engage various stakeholders to establish ceasefires. Mm. And in building these relationships that we talked about, they now are able to work with security agencies, the Moral National Liberation Front, local governments and civil society Mm. to find innovative and peaceful ways forward. But also by bringing peace to the local community, Tumikang Samasama is now also able to work on local economic empowerment. And why we say this is because without peace, the people cannot go to the market to sell their wares Mm. or to buy food that's important for them. Children can't go to school, right? Hence, there needs to be more of a focus of what Asia can do to A, empower the resilience of society so they can manage such conflict. But also when conflict is rife, how can those that enjoy peace also become active stewards in promoting harmony for others, right? Mm. So mm. Tumikang Samasama, as I highlighted, is, a, is an example of what Asia could have more of, right, if we are able to build that resilience for communities. Mm. And we're going to see more of that with climate change, unfortunately, because you know, the small island developing states with lots and lots of islands, how many seawalls can you build around all the islands, right? Mm-hmm. And mitigation certainly is important. Adaptation of infrastructure is also important. But we need to talk about adaptation in terms of resilience of the people. Mm. We're already seeing this in the Sahel region, right? Where pastoral and agricultural communities, way of life are being threatened because of the increase in scarcity of resources. And so they fight over water points, land, and, you know, whatever that they need. And this also results in the disruption of established customs and traditions. Mm-hmm. And when strangers arrive into new communities, the fabric of our community can tear. Yeah. So what does this mean for building up in Asia resilience so that when communities have to move or have to shift or have to, to decide on resource allocation, that they are better able to manage that at that point? Yeah, I mean, it's a, my, my question to that immediately will be, what is preventing the very obvious answers you've laid out from being accepted as the go-to resolution in the halls of power across Asia? Why is Asia resorting to such significant increase in defense spending? I suppose in Asia, there is more trust that needs to be built between the parties. And over the last couple of years, with the rise of majors and competition between parties, you have smaller states feeling like they're being pulled into camps of the majors, right? Mm -hmm. And there's just less of this sense of how can we empower our own people to Mm. find solutions that are not military-based. Yeah. And also, I think what we should also be looking at is the issue of 
how can what we do be sustainable? I don't think militarization is sustainable, right? And what mm. I mean by that is, how often has an arms race really promoted harmony and mm. resolve conflict, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, Instead, right. it increases the risk of miscalculation, misunderstandings, and of course, it magnifies that cost of confrontation. But if the focus can be on behavioral change beyond just, say, agreements per se, then we might really be hitting something here. And, and I, I just give a very simple example, mm-hmm. right? If, if you have two neighbors that disagree about how loud music should be played and mm-hmm. what kind of music should be played at what time of the night, mm-hmm. you can have them go to lawyers, forge a, a written agreement, but that's not going to help the relationship of the parties. Mm-hmm. But if we go back to what we were talking about, in, which is investing in dialogue and helping each other to see the other, right? It's yeah. actually one who's, who's actually closer to themselves. They might be able to come to a more creative solution, you know, that works for both parties. Mm-hmm. And all of this, unfortunately, is in, in Asia, is being exacerbated by social media, right? Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, social media magnifies the divisions between the various groups in society. My, my, my mom's going to be very upset with me for saying this, but sometimes I tell her <laughs> to stop forwarding me fake news, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and she says, well, this was, you know, sent and, and, and from her friends and, you know, obviously it, it, it should be trusted. And I think that's when we have to highlight that actually information that is sent is not necessarily true. And we should be really asking if this is reliable, we should be fact-checking, right? Mm-hmm. Because misinformation doesn't help the tensions in our society. Again, it's a very familiar topic of mine and one that I address a lot, uh, uh, the dangers of particularly social media, uh, because information now finds you in your pocket. You don't need to go looking for it. Right. And I think that there are many things, actually, you know, that we, we can be working on in Asia. So, for example, one would be looking at the different phases of the conflict curve. So in an early stage of a conflict, it's about allowing a, either a neutral institution or maybe even the parties themselves working with trust-building activities, right, mm-hmm. and then helping them helping the contending parties to forge positive agendas to balance the dynamics of that relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the kind of preventive diplomacy that is important. You know, at the same time, it's also looking at how when conflict is rife, mm-hmm. doing discrete back channeling to strengthen the communication channel. And also maybe a third party could bring parties to the table and acting as a either mediator or offering face-saving options for the mm-hmm. conflict parties. Mm-hmm. And even when a ceasefire agreement is in place. There are many things that, that still needs to be done, which includes providing resources to encourage buy-in and a holistic implementation of the agreement, as well as identifying gaps and solutions so that the gains that have been uh, achieved will not be eroded due to lack of resources. Mm. So this is one element that Asia could be looking more at. And I think the second one would be building stronger connections between what we call the suits and the boots, right? Mm-hmm. So the suits are sort of, you know, your track one negotiators. And, and being there, I realized that often our KPI was to close the deal. And I understand that that is important and a lot of effort goes into it. Mm. But how can we connect better to the communities that are going to be impacted by that agreement, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So is there a way that where we can strengthen that channel so that we understand what the community needs and that's being put into the agreements that we negotiate? And then so that once you've formulated that understanding or agreement, you bring it back to the community or you work mm. very closely with the community to foster ownership, right? And then that's where you can produce more implemental outcomes. Because going back to what you were talking about, you know, in terms of UN negotiations, we often <laughs> ask ourselves that, you know, we produce so many agreements, but how many of them actually stick, yeah. right? How many of them actually impact the people on the ground, you know? 
Mm. So I think that's the sort of second element. And here I would really encourage negotiators to look into CCHN, which is the Centre for Competence in Humanitarian Negotiations, because these are communities of practice and they have different focuses, whether it's in you know Afghanistan or, or other parts of the world. And you get to hear what negotiators on the ground are facing, right? Mm. And so you as a negotiator in the halls of New York or Geneva could really bring in that input to ensure that whatever is agreed to in these big halls is helpful to those on the ground. Yeah. I think a third element mm-hmm. is of what we can do in Asia is about helping these negotiators to speak, as we highlighted, for a better world by balancing the interests and their global responsibility. Because there are actually a lot of people in Asia that are benefiting from a peaceful environment, right? Mm. And so how do we encourage them to feel that actually they too can become active stewards in promoting harmony for others, that everybody has, as an individual, has power and responsibility mm. to mm. be a peacemaker. Mm. And I guess as the Southeast Southeast Asia Director at HD, I'm, <laughs> I'm only imagining that you have a number of conflicts or potential conflicts that you're keeping a close eye on. So what are some of those principal challenges in your portfolio that are keeping you awake at night? So there are still conflicts within the state. There's also interstate conflict, um, as well as what is to come as, mm. as we hide on, on, on climate change. You know, I, I won't dwell too much into this here, but certainly Myanmar is key, right? Mm. Here, I think we need to be supporting existing tracks. You know, whether it's the ASEAN Special Envoy as well as the UN Special Envoy and, and many other actors who are, are working in this space. It's also about focusing on humanitarian assistance because there really is a real need for that now, right? Many people are suffering. How can we support, you know, CSOs and, and others who are trying to provide humanitarian assistance? And then a third is really going back to that idea of how can we in the longer run, you know, empower local communities? Because at the end of the day, they are the ones who live there, yeah. right? And so whatever approach that we need or we want to pursue needs to be sustainable. What we don't want is to say, sorry, they need to figure themselves out mm. and when they're done, and then, you know, we can talk peace. But no, it's, it's about actually finding ways, you know, being creative and in, in looking for solutions. And where do these negotiations or mediations most often fail? Because I think you highlight the point that they need to be sustainable. So what is it that prevents them from being sustainable? So one of which is, megaphone diplomacy, unfortunately. I think that, you know, whether it's because of social media, but there's just more leaks and more information going out before it is right, Mm. right? Mm. So this is not to say that transparency is not important. Mm. It's just to say that sometimes discretion is also key if you want to build trust between the parties. And you might, you know, if it's between you and a best friend, you might want to work it out between yourselves before you put it out on Facebook, right? That's right. So yeah. this is something which I think hurts negotiations, especially when something good might be on track and you have other parties who, and spoilers sometimes, who decide that actually, you know what, I'm, I'm going to use this opportunity to put it out there and, and to spoil the process. Another thing is about sequencing, right? Realizing that actually it's not just important to put the parties in the room. You need to know if the time is right to discuss various elements. So yes, it's important to put them in the room so that they can better understand each other, but it may not be the timing to cut that deal, right? Mm. Which is why we go back to the point of the relationship, because if I have a good relationship with you here, right? And I know that 
if I cut a deal with you today and it goes out, you know, it's probably not going to be implemented because the ground is not ready. I can let you know this very honestly and I can say, let's hold off. Let's find other solutions here. And that agreement will come in time. And you could trust that with me, right? Mm. But if we don't have that trust and we don't have that understanding and we don't have that relationship built between us two, then things are again are going to go out before they are ready. Hence, instead of just saying that the magic is going to happen when people are in the room, we should really should be thinking about how to sequence, how do you design a process? And a lot of thought goes into it, right? Mm, mm, I think mm. the third element in ensuring that peace is sustainable is that you need local ownership. It cannot just be about, as we said, a negotiator who goes out and his KPI is getting you that agreement. Because that's what negotiators are good at, right? Mm. But if they don't have that understanding of what the communities actually need, then no matter how pretty or glitzy the signing ceremony is, you're not going to get much implementation carried out because the local communities don't actually buy into whatever that was agreed. Yeah. I mean, again, this this speaks to another point I've, I've stressed quite a lot, and that's that peace is built in pieces. Just like we have a path to war, there's a path to peace. Uh, and I recently had a, uh, a negotiator who worked in Ukraine, not on the not on the current war, but uh, was there previously. And one of one of the points he made about the current invasion of uh, Ukraine by Russia is that, despite the fact that there is combat operations going on at the moment, and that you know Ukraine should retain its full right to defend itself as it sees fit. Notwithstanding that, there needs to be, in parallel, talks need to continue to set the conditions for the return of peace at some point. Uh, and I think that's the important aspect of, of this kind of commitment to building it in bits and pieces, I, I guess, along the way. Uh, and that's perhaps why they need to be discreet so that they don't lose their potency by being exposed. Because if you are exposed and there's an active war going on, it's very feasible that you'll be declared a traitor or that some political domestic actors will seek to exploit your position, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And that will undermine the entire yeah. effort, right? Exactly. And so what is the role of, uh, of organizations like HD? And, and, and I'm not asking you to talk about your operations, but what is the role of these types of organizations in, I guess, setting the conditions for these bigger, more long-term, more enduring, and perhaps more public uh, negotiations to take place. Sure, and I suppose also what what attracted me to to the organization because I I would be very frank I was looking for a new job I was looking to to leave the foreign service uh, which I was I was quite happy in mm-hmm. but one of the things was you know in in coming back to Singapore and in realizing that in many of these you know multilateral negotiations that we were in you know I I had this question about to what extent. Was it fruitful for local communities? And therefore, HD's model of suits and boots mm. was very attractive to me because it builds on that connection that by having people on the ground and they knowing what is needed and empowering them to be able to find those solutions. Then we can also work at the track one level, whether you know meeting with ministers or other high level people to forge and get that political will to move where things are needed. So I think that's one approach, which is the, the suits and boots model. And then I think the second one is really about discretion. I cannot highlight this strongly enough, but you know, for, for HD, you don't really see what we, we do out in the news because we respect the parties, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's about realizing that the parties have a choice of how they want to convey things, but that is not for us to do. What we want to do is to support the parties who are in negotiations. Mm. And then the, the third element is 
building communities that believe and can support the process in the longer run. And I was really inspired by the fact that the heads of, in my region, Myanmar, Philippines, and Thailand, are all led by local women who want to find solutions for their own communities out there and have the networks, right? Mm -hmm. And build it up over time. And, And I believe that that is what makes it sustainable. And that's how we value add at the end of the day, because we're not looking to compete in that space. You know, for me, it's always about how can we support the process there? And, and if there's someone else already working there, then it's about supporting them or putting our, our time elsewhere. Mm. And given the, I guess, elephant in the room, uh, or shall I say the dragon in the room, uh, is very obvious. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's a topic that is very difficult to bypass when one talks about any part of Asia, uh, is of course the rise of China. And however China interprets its rise uh, is one thing, but how other nations uh, interpreting its rise is another. And I'm guessing South and Southeast Asia hold the key in many ways for how China's rise is to be negotiated with the rest of the world. What is your view on that? I mean, how do you, how do you see this uh, unfolding, both in your work professionally, but also more broadly in South and Southeast Asia? I think we're definitely seeing more of a US-China dynamic in much of our work. Mm. And as I highlighted earlier, I think small states really don't like feeling that they have to choose between the majors, right? Yeah. Hence, there are more calls for non-alignment or multi-alignment. But the truth also is that if you are a large state, you have that luxury to talk about strategic autonomy and non-alignment. But if you are a small state, how do you manage that, right? Which is why ASEAN is key. Mm. If ASEAN can be more cohesive and come together, then it's a lot easier for states to say, we welcome all parties to engage ASEAN, right? Rather than being pulled into directions, especially for small states, you know? And I think you would see this not just in Southeast Asia, but in the Pacific as well as in South Asia as well. And so how can we also empower small states to realize that in this asymmetric power, you have certain strengths, if I might say so. So mm. one of the things that we, we used to talk about in, in the UN was that you have the gorilla and the ant, right? Mm-hmm. The 800-pound gorilla. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, what we call the fearless ant. And the fearless ant actually has its own strengths, right? Mm. And the reason why is because it often has a less rigid structure, maybe less layers of bureaucracy that it has to deal with. Chances are there's also less scrutiny of the media because, mm-hmm. you know, it's just not seen to be as you know, newsworthy, mm. and it also might have less of a fixed reputation, right? Mm. And what this means then is that the fearless end can perhaps think outside the script or the box. Uh-huh. It can, you know, offer up solutions without worrying that this will go out too much into the news or that they will be stuck or labeled by it, right? Or people will analyze too much into what they might mean. Mm. You know, they can also be more adaptable. They can move a lot quicker because you probably don't have that many chains or layers of bureaucracy you have to go through. And you can also play a bridging role, Mm. right? Hence, how can we encourage more of these small and medium-sized states to to step up Mm. in utilizing the strengths that they have? And at the same time, as some of my friends used to joke, the the, the gorilla can also actually learn how to play its cards right. And that could be as simple as respecting that small, straight and medium-sized states have their own interests spending time listening to what those interests actually are, right? Uh, Another part of it would be how do you display willingness to show that you are actually willing to find neutral 
solutions that could benefit both sides, mm. rather than just it being a top-down thing that's what we should be doing. And then the third would be for the gorilla to, to also bide your time or choose your battles, right? Not everything needs to be a battle, you mm. know? And so I guess from the multilateral um, negotiations that, that we used to work in, it gave us lessons about how every state can leverage on its strengths mm-hmm. to contributing, whether it's to de-escalating tensions or to building bridges so that the environment is a little bit more peaceful for everyone. Yeah. And I guess what I'm hearing you say as well is that there is potential for South and Southeast Asia to perhaps even play a mediator role in many ways going forward between US and China. Because, it, I mean, there's no point denying it. That is the obvious contest affecting global affairs everywhere, uh, not just in South and Southeast Asia, but certainly is felt there. Uh, so is that uh, a path you see for the organizations like the uh, ASEAN or any other different uh, groupings or, or kind of like you said uh, before to build alliances, I guess, between some of these smaller nations, because then they have perhaps a little bit more bargaining power or a little bit more strength as they're standing together that they could potentially mediate between these two superpowers or, you know, one still the hegemon and an emerging superpower. Indeed, I think if, if ASEAN can stand together mm. strongly, then it could actually establish various trust-building activities so that the majors have common interests in the region, mm. right? That becomes a more positive dynamic or positive balance in that relationship rather than just being focused on, on the tensions mm. uh, that we already know are existing. You know, again, ASEAN could be that safe space, right, to foster dialogue. It can talk about how, you know, there might be SOPs for, for de-escalation. These are all elements which I think if the ASEAN member states are willing to invest in, it could really play a very fruitful role going forward. Yeah, as long as uh, megaphone diplomacy, <laughs> again, doesn't uh, spoil, uh, spoil, spoil those attempts. Perhaps my last question to you is, uh, given everything that we've spoken about, what is your greatest fear as well as your greatest hope given everything we've talked about? Wow. Okay. <laughs> I think my greatest fear is that with the increase in militarization, that there might be a misunderstanding, something that was not foreseen, and you see a clash which nobody wants. And I think at this point in time, it's fair to say nobody really wants such a clash. Mm. But again, we are dealing with human nature, right? And, and mistakes happen, and sometimes things are misconstrued. If you don't have clear channels of communication, it becomes a real risk. And, you know, through your podcast, I'm sure you hear of this very often, but the cost of war is just terrible, whether it's about economic costs, social costs, or the humanitarian fallout of it. You know, and, and we should really be working towards avoiding in that by investing, as we said, in more dialogue and in more community resistance. Mm, mm, mm. What gives me hope? What gives me hope is that in the negotiations that I've experienced, I actually have seen people say, you know what, I want to support you, but my HQ hasn't given approval. <laughs> but because this is important, I'm going ahead to support this cause, right? I have seen other parties say, this is going to be very difficult for my government or whoever party to accept, let me work with you so that it would also work with them, but be something that you can still pursue. Mm. And this showed me the fact that humanity exists and it's strong and it's there. And how do we help people to see that they can help the other by not seeing the other 
party as exactly what we were talking about, mm. the other, mm. right? Mm. But by building empathy, by helping them see each other beyond that organization or institution that they represent. So that each person speaks up, mm. right? Because they have that responsibility to do so. And when you have an opportunity, you should be utilizing that in a good way to contribute to what society needs. Hence, the hope is in the fact that as humans, I think we ultimately want to help each other in some form or fashion. Sometimes we don't necessarily know the best way to do so. But I think through more dialogue and more community resilience, we will be able to get there. Which is why I really like about this individualizing it, the interpersonal aspect, right? When you take people out of their performance, out of the role that they're adopting on behalf of a nation state, an ethnic group, when they have all of that on their shoulders, when they're carrying all of that, it's a lot harder to move against it. But if it's on an individual level, if it's on a one-on-one where you can start being human, like you said, people will you know, potentially go the extra mile and say, I see you, I hear you, I trust you, I will you know, make inquiries, I will move mountains for you yeah. because I see that your intention is pure. Uh, and oftentimes when we come as a group, that is uh, <laughs> that is not heard. Uh, rather, we get into the uh, you know our, our groupishness instinct kicks in, and it's us versus them uh, rather than you and me, uh, which is a, which is a very different uh, angle. Exactly, exactly. And I think the summary is to be human, right? Mm, yeah. And help the other party to see that you are a human being too. That's wonderful, Eamon, uh I knew this would be fascinating that a conversation with an actual real negotiator, somebody who's been there on the ground uh, and is living and breathing diplomacy. Uh, mediation, both public, overt, and now also in a more discreet fashion, uh, was always going to be exciting and uh, and certainly was. So thank you very much for taking the time. I know your schedule's busy uh, with so many challenges <laughs> across South and Southeast <laughs> Asia. Uh, so I really do appreciate you making the time to speak today. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Voices of War. And since you got this far, please take a moment to like and review the show wherever you get your pods. Also, if you're able, please consider showing your support through our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. Thank you, and until the next time.